0: Chapter 10 of The End of the Tether by Joseph Conrad This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan Chapter 10 The End of the Tether The knowledge was too disturbing, really. There was something wrong with a vengeance, and the moral certitude of it was at first simply frightful to contemplate. Stern had been looking aft in a mood so idle that for once he was thinking no harm of anyone, his captain on the bridge presented himself naturally to his sight. How insignificant, how casual was the thought that had started the train of discovery, like an accidental spark that suffices to ignite the charge of a tremendous mine. Caught under by the breeze, the awnings of the foredeck bellied upwards and collapsed slowly, and above their heavy flapping the grey stuff of Captain Wally's roomy coat fluttered incessantly around his arms and trunk. He faced the wind in full light, with his great silvery beard blown forcibly against his chest. The eyebrows overhung heavily the shadows where his glance appeared to be staring ahead piercingly. Stern could just detect the twin gleam of the whites shifting under the shaggy arches of the brow. At short range these eyes, for all the man's affable manner, seemed to look you through and through, "'Stone never could defend himself from that feeling "'when he had occasion to speak with his captain. "'He did not like it. "'What a big heavy man he appeared up there "'with that little shrimp of a serang in close attendance, "'as was usual in this extraordinary steamer. "'Confounded absurd custom that, he resented it. "'Surely the old fellow could have looked after his ship "'without that loafing native at his elbow. "'Stone wriggled his shoulders with disgust. "'What was it?' Indolence or what? That old skipper must have been growing lazy for years. They all grew lazy out east here. Stern was very conscious of his own unimpaired activity. They got slack all over. But he towered very erect on the bridge, and quite low by his side, as you see a small child looking over the edge of a table, the battered soft hat and the brown face of the serang peeped over the white canvas screen of the rail. No doubt the Malay was standing back, nearer to the wheel, but the great disparity of size in close association amused Stern, like the observation of a bizarre fact in nature. They were as queer fish out of the sea as any in it. He saw Captain Wally turn his head quickly to speak to his serang. The wind whipped the whole white mass of the beard sideways. He would be directing the chap to look at the compass for him or what not. Of course, too much trouble to step over and see for himself. Stern's scorn for that bodily indolence which overtakes white men in the East increased on reflection. Some of them would be utterly lost if they hadn't all these natives at their beck and call. They grew perfectly shameless about it, too. He was not of that sort, thank God. It wasn't in him to make himself dependent for his work on any shriveled-up little Malay like that. As if one could ever trust a silly native for anything in the world. But that fine old man thought differently it seems there they were together never far apart a pair of them recalling to the mind an old whale attended by a little pilot fish the fancifulness of the comparison made him smile a whale with an inseparable pilot fish that's what the old man looked like for it could not be said he looked like a shark though mr massey had called him that very name but mr massey did not mind what he said in his savage fits stern smiled to himself and gradually the ideas evoked by the sound by the imagined shape of the word pilot fish the ideas of aid of guidance needed and received came uppermost in his mind the word pilot awakened the idea of trust of dependence the idea of welcome clear-eyed help brought to the seamen groping for the land in the dark groping blindly in fogs feeling their way in the thick weather of the gales that filling the air with a salt mist blown up from the sea contract the range of sight on all sides to a shrunken horizon that seems within reach of the hand a pilot sees better than a stranger because his local knowledge like a sharper vision completes the shapes of things hurriedly glimpsed penetrates the veils of mist spread over the land by the storms of the sea defines with certitude the outlines of a coast lying under the pall of fog, the forms of landmarks half buried in a starless night as in a shallow grave. He recognises because he already knows. It is not to his far-reaching eye, but to his more extensive knowledge, that the pilot looks for certitude, for this certitude of the ship's position on which may depend a good man's fame and the peace of his conscience, the justification of the trust deposited in his hands, with his own life, too, which is seldom wholly his to throw away, and the humble lives of others rooted in distant affections, perhaps, and made as weighty as the lives of kings by the burden of the awaiting mystery. The pilot's knowledge brings relief and certitude to the commander of a ship. The serang, however, in his fanciful suggestion of a pilot fish attending a whale, could not in any way be credited with a superior knowledge. Why should he have it? These two men had come on that run together, the white and the brown, on the same day. And, of course, a white man would learn more in a week than the best native would in a month. He was made to stick to the skipper as though he were of some use, as the pilot fish, they say, is to the whale. But how? It was very marked. How? A pilot fish, a pilot, a... But if not superior knowledge, then... Stern's discovery was made. It was repugnant to his imagination, shocking to his ideas of honesty, shocking to his conception of mankind. This enormity affected one's outlook on what was possible in this world. It was as if, for instance, the sun had turned blue, throwing a new and sinister light on men and nature. Really, in the first moment he had felt sickish, as though he had got a blow below the belt. For a second the very colour of the sea seemed changed. "'appeared queer to his wandering eye, "'and he had a passing unsteady sensation in all his limbs "'as though the earth had started turning the other way. "'A very natural incredulity succeeding this sense of upheaval "'brought a measure of relief. "'He had gasped. It was over. "'But afterwards, during all that day, "'sudden paroxysms of wonder would come over him "'in the midst of his occupations. "'He would stop and shake his head.' the revolt of his incredulity had passed away almost as quick as the first emotion of discovery and for the next twenty-four hours he had no sleep that would never do at mealtimes he took the foot of the table set up for the white men on the bridge he could not help losing himself in a fascinated contemplation of captain wally opposite he watched the deliberate upward movement of the arm The old man put his food to his lips as though he never expected to find any taste in his daily bread, as though he did not know anything about it. He fed himself like a somnambulist. It's an awful sight, thought Stern, and he watched the long period of mournful silent immobility, with the big brown hand lying loosely closed by the side of the plate, till he noticed the two engineers to the right and left looking at him in astonishment. HE WOULD CLOSE HIS MOUTH IN A HURRY THEN, AND, LOWERING HIS EYES, WINK RAPIDLY AT HIS PLATE. IT WAS AWFUL TO SEE THE OLD CHAP SITTING THERE. IT WAS EVEN AWFUL TO THINK THAT WITH THE THREE WORDS HE COULD BLOW HIM UP SKY HIGH. ALL HE HAD TO DO WAS TO RAISE HIS VOICE AND PRONOUNCE A SINGLE SHORT SENTENCE. AND YET THAT SIMPLE ACT SEEMED AS IMPOSSIBLE TO ATTEMPT AS MOVING THE SUN OUT OF ITS PLACE IN THE SKY. The old chap could eat in his terrific mechanical way, but Stern, from mental excitement, could not. Not that evening, at any rate. He had had ample time since to get accustomed to the strain of the meal hours. He would never have believed it. But then, use is everything. Only the very potency of his success prevented anything resembling elation. He felt like a man who, in his legitimate search for a loaded gun to help him on his way through the world, chances to come upon a torpedo, upon a live torpedo with a shattering charge in its head and a pressure of many atmospheres in its tail. It is the sort of weapon to make its possessor careworn and nervous. He had no mind to be blown up himself, and he could not get rid of the notion that the explosion was bound to damage him too in some way. This vague apprehension had restrained him at first. He was able now to eat and sleep with that fearful weapon by his side, with the conviction of its power always in mind. It had not been arrived at by any reflective process, but once the idea had entered his head, the conviction had followed overwhelmingly in a multitude of observed little facts to which before he had given only a languid attention. The abrupt and faltering intonations of the deep voice, The taciturnity put on like an armour, the deliberate as if guarded movements, the long immobilities as if the man he watched had been afraid to disturb the very air. Every familiar gesture, every word uttered in his hearing, every sigh overheard had acquired a special significance, a confirmatory import. Every day that passed over the cephala appeared to stern simply crammed full of proofs, with incontrovertible proofs. At night, when off duty, he would steal out of his cabin in pyjamas for more proofs, and stand a full hour, perhaps, on his bare feet below the bridge, as absolutely motionless as the awning stanchion in its deck-stocket nearby. On the stretches of easy navigation, it is not usual for a coasting captain to remain on deck all the time of his watch, the serang keeps it for him as a matter of custom. In open water or on a straight course, he is usually trusted to look after the ship by himself. But this old man seemed incapable of remaining quietly down below. No doubt he could not sleep, and no wonder. This was also a proof. Suddenly, in the silence of the ship panting upon the still dark sea, Stern would hear a low voice above him exclaiming nervously, Sarang? Duan? You are watching the compass well? Yes, I am watching Tuan. The ship is making her course? She is Tuan, very straight. It is well, and remember, Serang, that the order is that you are to mind the helmsman and keep a lookout with care, the same as if I were not on deck. Then, when the Serang had made his answer, the low tones on the bridge would cease, and everything round stern seemed to become more still and more profoundly silent slightly chilled and with his back aching a little from long immobility he would steal away to his room on the port side of the deck he had long since parted with the last vestige of incredulity of the original emotion set into a tumult by the discovery some trace of the first awe alone remained not the awe of the man himself he could blow him up sky high with six words rather it was an awe-struck indignation at the reckless perversity of avarice What else could it be, at the mad and sombre resolution that for the sake of a few dollars more seemed to set at nought the common rule of conscience, and pretended to struggle against the very decree of providence? You could not find another man like this one in the whole round world, thank God. There was something devilishly dauntless in the character of such a deception which made you pause. Other considerations occurring to his prudence had kept him tongue-tied from day to day. It seemed to him now that it would yet have been easier to speak out in the first hour of discovery. He almost regretted not having made a row at once. But then, the very monstrosity of the disclosure. Why, he could hardly face it himself, let alone pointing it out to somebody else. Moreover, with a desperado of that sort, one never knew. The object was not to get him out, that was as well as done already, but to step into his place. Bizarre as the thought seemed, he might have shown fight. A fellow up to working such a fraud would have enough cheek for anything. A fellow that, as it were, stood up against God Almighty himself. He was a horrid marvel, that's what he was. He was perfectly capable of brazening out the affair scandalously, till he got him stern, kicked out of the ship, and everlastingly damaged his prospects in this part of the East. Yet if you want to get on, something must be risked. At times, Stern thought he had been unduly timid of taking action in the past, and what was worse, it had come to this, that in the present he did not seem to know what action to take. Massey's savage moroseness was too disconcerting. It was an incalculable factor of the situation. You could not tell what there was behind that insulting ferocity. How could one trust such a temper? It did not put Stern in bodily fear for himself, but it frightened him exceedingly as to his prospects. Though, of course, inclined to credit himself with exceptional powers of observation, he had by now lived too long with his discovery. He had gone on looking at nothing else, till at last one day it occurred to him that the thing was so obvious that no one could miss seeing it. There were four white men in all on board the Sephala. Jack, the second engineer, was too dull to notice anything that took place out of his engine room. Remained Massey, the owner, the interested person, nearly going mad with worry stern had heard and seen more than enough on board to know what ailed him but his exasperation seemed to make him deaf to cautious overtures if he had only known it there was the very thing he wanted but how could you bargain with a man of that sort it was like going into a tiger's den with a piece of raw meat in your hand he was as likely as not to rend you for your pains In fact, he was always threatening to do that very thing, and the urgency of the case, combined with the impossibility of handling it with safety, made stern in his watches below, toss and mutter, open-eyed in his bunk for hours, as though he had been burning with fever. Occurrences like the crossing of the bar just now were extremely alarming to his prospect. He did not want to be left behind by some swift catastrophe, Massy, being on the bridge, the old man had to brace himself up "'and make a show, he supposed, but it was getting very bad with him, "'very bad indeed, now. "'Even Massy had been emboldened to find fault this time. "'Stern, listening at the foot of the ladder, "'had heard the others whimpering and artless denunciations. "'Luckily, the beast was very stupid and could not see the why of all this. "'However, small blame to him. "'It took a clever man to hit upon the cause.' Nevertheless, it was high time to do something. The old man's game could not be kept up for many days more. "'I may yet lose my life at this fooling, let alone my chance,' Stern mumbled angrily to himself after the stooping back of the chief engineer had disappeared round the corner of the skylight. Yes, no doubt, he thought, but to blurt out his knowledge would not advance his prospect. On the contrary, it would blast them utterly as likely as not. He dreaded another failure. He had a vague consciousness of not being much liked by his fellows in this part of the world, inexplicably enough, for he had done nothing to them. Envy, he supposed. People were always down on a clever chap who made no bones about his determination to get on. To do your duty and count on the gratitude of that brute Massey would be sheer folly. He was a bad lot. Unmanly. A vicious man. Bad. Bad, a brute, a brute without a spark of anything human about him, without so much as simple curiosity, even, or else surely he would have responded in some way to all these hints he had been given. Such insensibility was almost mysterious. Massey's state of exasperation seemed to Stern to have made him stupid beyond the ordinary silliness of shipowners. Stern, meditating on the embarrassments of that stupidity, forgot himself completely. His stony, unwinking stare was fixed on the planks of the deck. The slight quiver agitating the whole fabric of the ship was more perceptible in the silent river, shaded and still like a forest path. The Safala, gliding with an even motion, had passed beyond the coast belt of mud and mangroves. The shores rose higher in firm sloping banks, and the forest of big trees came down to the brink, where the earth had been crumbled by the floods it showed a steep brown cut denuding a mass of roots intertwined as if wrestling underground and in the air the interlaced boughs bound and loaded with creepers carried on the struggle for life mingled their foliage in one solid wall of leaves with here and there the shape of an enormous dark pillar soaring or a ragged opening as if torn by the flight of a cannon-ball disclosing the impenetrable gloom within the secular, inviolable shade of the virgin forest. The thump of the engines reverberated regularly like the strokes of a metronome beating the measure of the vast silence. The shadow of the western wall had fallen across the river and the smoke pouring backwards from the funnel eddied down behind the ship spread a thin, dusky veil over the sombre water which, checked by the flood tide, seemed to lie stagnant in the whole straight length of the reaches stern's body as if rooted on the spot trembled slightly from top to toe with the internal vibration of the ship from under his feet came sometimes a sudden clang of iron the noisy burst of a shout below to the right the leaves of the treetops caught the rays of the low sun and seemed to shine with a golden green light of their own shimmering around the highest boughs which stood out black against a smooth blue sky that seemed to droop over the bed of the river like the roof of a tent The passengers for Batu Beru, kneeling on the planks, were engaged in rolling their bedding of mats busily. They tied up bundles, they snapped the locks of wooden chests. A pockmarked peddler of small wares threw his head back to drain into his throat the last drops out of an earthenware bottle before putting it away in a roll of blankets. Knots of travelling traders standing about the deck conversed in low tones. The followers of a small rajah from down the coast, Broad-faced, simple young fellows in white drawers and round white cotton caps with their coloured sarongs twisted across their bronze shoulders, squatted on their hams on the hatch, chewing beetle with bright red mouths as if they had been tasting blood. Their spears lying piled up together within the circle of their bare toes resembled a casual bundle of dry bamboos. A thin, livid Chinaman with a bulky package wrapped up in leaves already thrust under his arm, gazed ahead eagerly. A wandering cling rubbed his teeth with a bit of wood, pouring over the side a bright stream of water out of his lips. The fat rajah dozed in a shabby deck chair, and at the turn of every bend the two walls of leaves reappeared running parallel along the banks, with their impenetrable solidity fading at the top to a vaporous mistiness of countless slender twigs growing free of young delicate branches shooting from the topmost limbs of hoary trunks, of feathery heads of climbers like delicate silver sprays standing up without a quiver. There was not a sign of a clearing anywhere, not a trace of human habitation, except when in one place, on the bare end of a low point under an isolated group of slender tree-ferns, the jagged, tangled remnants of an old hut on piles appeared with that peculiar aspect of ruined bamboo walls that look as if smashed with a club. Farther on, half-hidden under the drooping bushes, a canoe containing a man and a woman, together with a dozen green coconuts in a heap, rocked helplessly after the cephala had passed, like a navigating contrivance of venturesome insects, of travelling ants, while two glassy folds of water, streaming away from each bow of the steamer across the whole width of the river, ran with her upstream smoothly, fretting their outer ends into a brown, whispering tumble of froth against the miry foot of each bank. I must, thought, Stern bring that brute Massey to his bearings. It's getting too absurd in the end. Here's the old man up there buried in his chair. He may just as well be in his grave for all the years he'll ever be in the world and the Sarang's in charge. Because that's what he is, in charge, in the place that's mine, by rights. I must bring that savage brute to his bearings. I'll do it at once, too. When the mate made an abrupt start, a little brown half-naked boy with large black eyes and the string of a written charm around his neck became panic-struck at once. He dropped the banana he had been munching, and ran to the knee of a grave, dark Arab in flowing robes, sitting like a biblical figure, incongruously, on a yellow tin trunk, corded with a rope of twisted rattan. The father, unmoved, put out his hand to pat the little shaven pole protectingly. End of chapter 10